So I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme of change, impermanence, and what that means for our human lives. And the title I like to give for this topic is uh, Living in Rental Accommodation. The fundamental aspect of the Dharma teachings that the Buddha offered is this reflection, this contemplation, this giving attention to the fact that things change, that our experience is fluid, is not fixed, is impermanent. Anicca is the word the Buddha used. And the Buddha spoke of this particular teaching, this particular characteristic of phenomena of the world as being the elephant's footprint. And he said, the elephant's footprint, I mean, you might wonder why, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The elephant's footprint is the footprint that encompasses all other footprints. And so too, this truth that all that arises is subject to passing. This truth dominates the world of things, encompasses the world of things. And this human existence, in some ways, it's like living in rental accommodation. And I often reflect on experience that happened for myself and, and Catherine when we uh, first returned to England after living here in America for a couple of years. I was the resident teacher here and uh, we used to joke that Catherine was the vicar's wife. <laughs> now we came back from having been here for a couple of years and we didn't really have a lot of financial material resources and um, in those days retreats weren't full of enthusiasts. Well, they were full enough, but there were nowhere near as many people or as much demand for teaching as there is these days. And so our circumstances were quite constrained financially, and we were very, very happy when a friend of ours arranged and organized for us to live in this rather lovely big house um, as kind of sort of to keep an eye on the elderly gentleman who lived there who actually didn't want anyone keeping an eye on him, but whose daughters wanted somebody to be there just in case. So it was kind of, it wasn't really a job, but it was a, a whole wing of a mansion we got to live in. And they just said, would you like to come here and do this? We said, yes, thank you. And about a year later, they came and said very kindly and politely, we'd like you now to leave, please, because we need it for something else. It was where the, uh, the Sharpam Buddhist College, as it was then, was being uh, established. Um, and so we left and we went from one place to another for a while. We were kind of homeless, stayed in friends' houses and things. And then um, at some point, a couple of friends of ours who we, we knew from, or well, I, I knew particularly well from travels in, in Asia and retreats in India, and they, they were in a fortunate circumstance. Some family resources had come their way, and so they were buying a large house, a large piece of ground, and they thought, oh, we'd like to live with friends. We don't want to just be by ourselves. And they invited us to come and join them, so we did. And it was lovely. We lived together for a year and a half. We had regular meetings. We sat together. We were 
you know, sort of sharing our journeys, our paths, our lives. And at one of those meetings a year and a half after we came to live with them, they asked us if it would be all right with us if we could leave. (laughs) Very politely. And it was like, it's their house. I guess they can do that. (laughs) They tried not to take it too personally, you know, obviously. This experience of what it is to be here, this heart, mind, body, it's temporary accommodation. We're not here forever. And the landlord is kind of unpredictable. <laughs> we get invited in, and thank you. So glad to have a place to live. One day, time to leave. And so this truth of change, of impermanence, in, invites us to look at and to consider how we perceive how we conceive, and how we relate to the experiences of our life. And the Buddha invites us to take the reflection every day, to bring to mind on a daily basis, everything that is mine, beloved, and dear to me, that I will one day be parted from. And it's, it's quite something to really take that in. It's like everything that is mine, beloved, and dear to me. One day I will be parted from this. And we, we understand this to be true. But to contemplate it, to know that we and others will die. Maybe there will be parting. Maybe there will be planned separations. Maybe it will be accidental. Acknowledging this quite naturally and appropriately may bring some sorrow, some sadness, some grief in the actual experience and even in the recognition that this is so, even when it hasn't yet happened with regard to a particular situation, person or circumstance. So it's not inappropriate that we feel touched by this. But do we recognize that it's true, that it's so? Generally or often, it's really only when it's actually happening that we go, oh, yeah, that's right. This thing, person, situation, it's not forever. And it's, in a way, a little surprising because, you know, we know that, of course, things change and if we were to ask a small child somewhere, you know, do things stay the same forever? Once they've got past, you know, three or four or maybe five, and they can think a little bit about such things, they're probably going to say, no, things change. And we know it. But we also don't really know it. And in the Buddha's own story of his journey, as uh, I think Shada or someone recently referred to here, um, <laughs> I think it was Shada, um, this, this movement that the, 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 of the Buddha from the palace or the princely life that he had when he encountered the truth of, of aging, of sickness, of death and seeing that this was part of human existence. In recognizing that, he asked himself a question. He said, why should I, who am subject 
to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death, who am subject to impermanence. Why should I spend my life pursuing other things which are also subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death, subject to impermanence? Would it not make more sense that being subject to impermanence, to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death, I seek that which is not subject to this? That's what moved him to let go of the life and the world and the comfort that he had and seek for something in his journey. And that moment, it's sort of, it's like a, yeah, we know things change. I'm sure the Buddha had some idea about these things. The mythology version of the story says they made sure he never heard or saw or was aware of anybody ever being ill, dying, or aging, or getting born. To kind of, I can't imagine that's true. I think what it's saying is he woke up to it in a moment or in a journey, in a process that took place. We actually got the reality and the significance of it, not just the information at an intellectual level. Things change. Because what we can see if we look is that it's all around us. We know it. We, you don't need someone to come and tell you about that. Certainly not. You don't need me to tell you that things change. The question is, do we act in accordance with this? Are our lives aligned in a way that reflects this? Quite a few years ago, I was um, just packing my um, clothes to go and teach a retreat at Guy House, the retreat centre in, in Devon, England, uh, which we've, we've mentioned. And um, It had been really warm and sunny for the previous week, which is relatively unusual in England, um, without wanting to talk about English weather too much. Um, and I was, I'd been really enjoying the sunny weather, but when it came to packing for the retreat, I was a bit concerned because I didn't actually have so many clothes for warm weather that were relatively tidy. Um, and some of the sense of doing this particular role requires reasonably tidy clothes, nothing too fancy. But I was kind of really stressed, and I was like, oh, gosh, I'm not sure I've got quite the right things for a whole week of teaching. And so eventually, I, you know, I packed what I thought would work for the retreat, and I came to the retreat, and I was there. And um, a couple of days after the retreat began, the weather changed. It got cold, it got wet. It was summer, but actually in England it can get quite quite cold and damp in, in summer. It was raining. And I, I went back into my bag and I looked in my suitcase and I hadn't even brought a sweater. And it was like, I know that it rains and gets cold and the weather changes a lot in England in summer. But somehow, the fact that it had been sunny for five or six days in a row, I, and I was actually worried about the problem it had created of too much sunny weather. And I'd completely convinced myself, without actually reflecting on it, that this is how it was going to continue for the next week. And it's like, and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> this teaching. So, what's going on there? I started to reflect, and... I think what this expresses, or what this shows, is very well uh, articulated in uh, uh, something that the French philosopher Gaillou, I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, what he said. He said, 
If we know, but we do not act accordingly, then we know imperfectly. Like we don't really know. If our action is not reflecting what we know, then we don't really know it. And this process of practice, this journey that we're engaged in here, the cultivation of of insight, of understanding, it's a transformative process of correcting our misperception. The way in which we might not actually see to the full depth and truth what we might at some level understand, but don't necessarily live from or act in accordance with the implications of. And this misperception, these misperceptions that we are entangled in and driven by and bound as a result of, come because we have not really examined our experience carefully. It's, in a sense, that simple. So this transformative process is is a movement from an unawareness and a lack of understanding and comprehension of what's actually taking place in our life to wisdom and discernment, to seeing clearly and truly and deeply what is happening. And so we might think, but I've paid pretty careful attention to my life. And as I said, if I asked any of you, I'm sure you'd tell me, sure, I know, I understand that things change. If I asked myself, I'd say the same thing. But what actually happens? I'd like to invite you to just imagine for a moment, if you wish to, um, that you're in a car and you might be, say, just driving along on a long straight road, maybe doing around about the speed limit, you know, 50, 55, whatever that is here, I think. And a long straight road, if you look out the front of the car through the windscreen, at the horizon, it doesn't change very much, even at 50 mile an hour. It's kind of like, it's like this. If you look out the back windscreen of the car, and I don't suggest you do this if you're driving, but if you stand there, if you look out there for a while, what you see, it's not really changing either. On a long straight road. If you look out the side window, what's happening? As you're going along at 50 mile an hour, it's going so past so fast, it's blurred. You can't actually even see what's happening very clearly at any detail. Does that make sense? You follow that. So what happens for us much of the time in an unexamined and untrained mind is that our activity is fixated in the past and the future. Our orientation goes to the past to look for what was good so I can try and repeat that in the future and what was not good so I can try and avoid that in the future. Of course, there's something valuable about it. There's something useful. We call it learning. And that's great. We need that. But what actually happens in the way our attention works is we relate to the future based on the past. We have no other basis for thinking about what hasn't happened yet, apart from making it either similar to or different than what has happened before. Again, does that make sense? There isn't anything else we can relate to except it's the same as or it's different than what was. And what we know of what was is just fragments. Our memory is an assemblage of fragments. We don't ever remember something that happened as it happened because it would take as long as it happened to remember it fully with the full thing. So we've just got a few pictures. And the pictures are actually relatively static and fixed. 
the past isn't changing because it's just a few pictures. It's a long way back from where we're traveling, like on the road. And then we project it in front of us, either the same as or different than. The same as or different than what was. And we look at that, either with excitement and hope for what we wish for or anxiety and fear about what we fear or don't wish for. And they don't really change much. So while our attention tends to fixate in the past and the future, the sense of something permanent is easily created. And as we slow down in meditation practice, as we start to pay attention moment by moment by moment, what we start to see is, oh, this is like looking at the side of the road when you're driving along, not forwards or backwards, looking to the side. And actually we slow down a bit, so it's not blurring. If we slow down a lot, actually we start to see it. And as we see it, we realize, oh, this experience is changing rapidly, remarkably quickly. And so it's this tendency to dwell, to fixate on past and future that somehow orients us to a sense of permanence and fixity when there is in fact no such thing to be found in our experience. And so we're invited here on retreat, engaged in this practice, we're invited to give attention to the present moment, to right here, for many reasons. And one, and an important one, is that we start to see this flickering, fluid, changing experience for what it is. And to no longer relate through the ideas of permanence or continuity that otherwise easily seem to frame the way we're engaging with the world. So if we look at what might initially appear solid our own ex- in our experience, our body, our mind, and we might talk about taking a step. But in fact, as we get to feel it more clearly and closely, we realize it's a whole series of little events involved in taking one step. I mean, to that, even just taking a step, we might have thought it was just walking, and then I was, oh, it's a whole lot of steps. Wow, I've already seen all the little pieces. And then, oh, actually, each step is a whole lot of little pieces. And actually, even the little bit where my heel comes off the ground before I even get my foot off the ground, that's a whole lot of little pieces. If it slows down and our attention gets subtle, wow, we start to see how constant this is. And Likewise, breathing. At first, you know, it's like, I'm sure there's anything going on in my body. And then as I start to get more attentive, the tension becomes more stable and subtle. Oh, wow, I can feel this rhythm and flow. Mm, yeah. And then, oh, wow, actually, it's not just an in-breath and an out-breath. An in-breath is a whole coruscating, rippling, pouring, flowing, moving, shuffling, changing experience. And it's like, oh, it starts to open up to show us that what we called this is so much more. Whatever this we've called something and made it into a something and conceptually named it and then it seems like a fixed thing. Oh, the actual experience to which that refers is fluid and changing and dynamic and cannot be taken hold of. Our experience is constantly changing, transforming and morphing. And we're 
these sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts. Because in the Buddha's teaching, the mind is like a sixth sense. There's the five physical senses, and we see they receive experience. And the mind receives thoughts. And if you've wondered why they just seem to come in when you didn't plan on them, it's just like if you have an ear that can hear, sound is made, it comes in. You have an eye that can see, light is there, it comes in. You have a mind that's turned on, that's awake, there are thoughts, they come in. And where have they all gone? All the important thoughts you've had in your life. Where are they? They don't exist. They're gone. Where are the ones that are going to come? Tomorrow's supply. They're not in a cupboard waiting for you. They don't exist. And yet suddenly, somehow, they're going to appear. Or maybe not. And likewise, the sensations in our body. Where are all the pleasant things you felt in the previous ten weeks? Where are they now? Or ten years? Where are all the unpleasant things you've experienced in the past? Actually, they're gone. There might be impressions they've left. That's happening right now. That's different than the actual experience. It's like things are dissolving. And we're asked to contemplate this for a number of reasons. One is that we see that there's nothing fixed here we can point to. And the Buddha asked us to consider this. When we imagine ourselves to be this, and what we examine what we'd see when we examine as sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts and moods. And there isn't actually something else we can point to, and none of what I can point to is staying the same for very long. It's like, does it make sense to take this as who I am? Given that it's changing, given that it's fluid? It's like trying to take hold of water. It just slips through our fingers. And so we struggle so much to try and find a sense of who I am based on all this. Have you noticed how long and how hard you have to work to hold it together? A sense of who you are. And how much time we spend trying to either affirm one version of who I am or negate another. And yet we can't ever quite do it. As soon as we've affirmed it, something else turns around and says, you know, okay, yeah, now I'm actually doing all right. Uh, now something else happens, I'm not doing so good. Or this confirms that things are all going bad and it's, you know, and then something comes along and actually that's okay. It doesn't ever settle into a reliable pattern if we're examining it carefully. If we're not really examining it, it's easy to gloss it over. And the concepts we place on top of the experience seem fixed and solid, but they're not. They're floating in water. And the water is fluid. So there's some further implications to this. One of the most important things to recognize is that this perception, attuning to, contemplating, giving our attention to this, at some level, it can be quite unsettling for us. That's also why we don't quite live 
according to the truth of it. Because to let ourselves really be impacted by it is unsettling. It's kind of scary. It's kind of like, but what can I do if nothing I've got or have or am stays the same? Or is reliably going to be there in the same way that it was? And so this movement of reactivity that we see in terms of craving, in terms of aversion, a lot of this is involved with not just the experiences we think we like or don't like, but trying to create some sense of solidity and security and reliability through establishing something that we can control, that looks the way it should be, being right, kind of the sense of shoulds when they arise. Although they can be so painful for us, they give a sense of something permanent, solid and fixed that we reference as, oh, at least I can trust that. Even if it means, you know, I should be different than I am, but at least it stays the same. So painful, but we'll take that sometimes because it gives me something that seems to be sustaining. And we give so much attention to the future because... We're trying to invest in creating circumstances, experiences, possessions, and also views in the hope that they will be somewhere we can call our home. And inevitably we're disappointed because they do not provide that. These effort to find or to gain in that manner some security or protection from the fact and reality and implications of change, of impermanence, of anicca, leads to frustration and disappointment. It's a little bit like children building sandcastles on the beach. Have you ever played building sandcastles? It's kind of fun, even as an adult. It's interesting when you build sandcastles, you know where you have to build a sandcastle. You can't build a sandcastle below the low tide zone, can you? It doesn't work. It's full of water. Have you ever tried to build a sandcastle above the high tide zone? It doesn't work. Dry sand. You can't do a thing with it. Where do you build a sandcastle? Between the high tide and the low tide zone. What happens? Wet sand you can make things with. And at some point the tide comes in. And you see sometimes children, when the tide comes in, desperately disappointed and sad to see their castle washed away. Or, delighting as the waves roll and coming and kicking the turrets off and dancing with the chaos of it all. It's good to see we have the possibility to not treat that reality as somehow catastrophic, but to understand what it offers us. And what it offers us is a possibility for living our life in a way that looks different than when we don't live with this wisdom of impermanence. Helen Keller, who lived a remarkable life, even with the challenges of being without sight or hearing. A remarkable, differently able human being she was. She once said, 
security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, and nor do the children of mankind as a whole experience it. In the long run, avoiding danger is no safer than outright exposure. Life is either a marvelous adventure or it is nothing. Remarkable words. Life is either a glorious adventure or it is nothing. What's that sense of to take this life as a glorious adventure? What might that mean for us? Of course, the fact of impermanence isn't all bad news, as we know. You know, it would be a little crowded in the meditation hall here if everyone who'd ever been here was still here. And when difficult experiences arise, of course, we're quite happy to contemplate impermanence. It's like, bring on a Nietzsche, you know. When we don't remember that, in the presence of a difficult experience, we struggle with it. And often the struggle is not with the experience. It's, oh yeah, this is difficult or painful. And the sense of, I can't bear it, that might arise for us, is almost always associated with the idea that we have that this is going to continue. And we can't bear that. Because the thing is, it's already happening and we're bearing it. It's here, we're here. That's bearing it. We don't like it. Sure. But that's different than we can't bear it. But we can't bear the thought of the experience continuing ongoingly. And of course... It's true, we can't bear it because it doesn't exist for us to be able to bear in any real terms. But the thought of that possibility, the projection, the imagining of, and the believing in that is deeply painful and potentially intolerable for us. And so contemplating impermanence is really helpful here to see, ah, this is not forever. I don't have to be with this all week or all day, or even for the whole sitting, but just for this moment to see. And yet so quickly the mind goes, oh, it's my knee, it hurts, pain, sensations, oh my gosh. And before we know it, the mind is picturing the ambulance pulling up at IMS and we're being carried out on a stretcher and it's, you know, it's an amputation at the knee and it's, you know, somehow that painful sensation has been projected into a catastrophic continuity. And that we can't bear. So sometimes just contemplating, ah, okay, this too shall pass. As Ajahn Chah used to say, this too, the teacher from Thailand, this too shall pass. Pen Anicca Due in the Thai. This unpermanent also. And just notice what happens. Ah, This too. Not, come on, impermanence. That's just aversion. We do that sometimes, don't we? Waiting for impermanence to do its thing. But actually just noticing that, ah, yeah, it's true. This too will pass. It gives space. 
having given attention to impermanence, as we practice, as we see the changing nature of things, it starts to give space to those reactions that are unconsciously being informed by an assumption of continuity. An unexamined belief or investment in continuity. And of course, the fact that things are not permanent, it's the basis of real beauty. Because have you ever seen one of those flowers in a restaurant that looks exactly like a flower? So you're wondering, is that a flower? And it's a really good version of a flower, but it's not a flower. It's plastic and fabric and colors. And it's kind of nice, and it's even pretty. But the fact that it's perfect, it almost doesn't work. It's like there's something about beauty that's showing the nature of life that changes. And there's something lifeless about what stops changing. It's like the sunset. We had some lovely sunsets in the last few days. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) It's lovely to watch a sunset. And it's like, wow, I could watch this forever. But what's happening with the sunset inevitably is it's slowly changing. Now, if it really didn't change, and even if it was the sun shining through those glass sort of coatings on the, on the trees, and they were glistening like jewels, but it was just a single fixed, and they wouldn't be twinkling, because that's changing, they'd be just that. You know, we'd look, well, that's really nice, yeah, yeah, I'd watch that for a few minutes, I think, probably, and then I'd start to think, hmm, it's really nice, wonder what's for supper. And yet, if it's changing, it's like, wow. It's like we're sitting there. It's like, wow, look, it's doing that. It's doing that. It's doing that. Likewise with a human being. The true beauty of a human being is they're growing, they're flowering, they're unfolding, that we see and perhaps enjoy and appreciate ourselves or another. And that sense of change actually brings an appreciation of what is precious in life, not just beautiful, but precious, of deep value. When Catherine and I got married, um, and we had our 25th anniversary this year in September, it's rather lovely. When we got married, we were very sort of young, very uh, probably somewhat idealistic in our sense of Dharma and Buddhism and all of that. And so we had this ceremony in which um, we opened the ceremony by Catherine singing a song which was based on an Aztec prayer of which the primary refrain was only for a short time. Life has loaned us to each other. And beautiful, only for a short time. Life has loaned us to each other. For us, it really spoke to the sense of how precious, how beautiful, how wonderful. Catherine's family all thought this was a bit strange. My family are kind of wacky and didn't make too much of it, but... um, but for Catherine's family, who are kind of more conventional in a certain way, it's like, oh, just a moment, what's all that about? But for us, it felt really, but yeah, it's precious because it's only for a short while. Yeah, you know, we, we were young. It's actually quite a while now. And there's a monastery in, um, in England, a monastery of the secluded heart. Chitta Viveka, where the 
or Chittos Buddhist monastery, where the teacher, Catherine's referred to Ajahn Sajito, who's also a, a teacher and blessed human being and friend for myself, where I, used to, I would often go and spend time. And there was a place, there's a place there that I always go, and it's kind of like a pilgrimage for me. There's a, there's a tree that's been planted, and there's a little plaque beside it. And on the plaque, there's a haiku. And the haiku is something very similar or close to this. It's The cherry blossom covers the hillside for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure it so. And underneath the haiku, there are the words, Little Sam, and a single date. And it speaks so clearly and beautifully of the preciousness of a life that was just one day. Not less precious for that, perhaps more so, because it was just for one day. And if this was forever, we wouldn't know its preciousness, this life. So, as this truth and this teaching challenges us, and this experience challenges us, so too it also offers us something, as is the nature of truth and wisdom teachings. And so, as we start to contemplate this more, we see that also, if this is how things are, what makes sense for my life? The significance of this is not just that this is how it is, but what does that mean for how I live, how I relate? If we're living in rental accommodation, how does it make sense to relate to that? When we moved in with our friends, it was really interesting because we moved in and I thought, wow, this is a lovely house. It's got lots of big rooms, lots of light. How wonderful. And they moved in and said, well, this is a nice house. We're going to move that wall over there. We'll put a fireplace here. We'll do this and that to it. Hmm, that's quite natural and fine. No judgment of that. But isn't it interesting when we think we've got it permanently, we start thinking of improving it. If we rent a house, we don't think, I'm not going to go in there and rip the walls out and move things around. No. Just like, well, okay, it'll do. It's okay. This human body, this human heart, this human mind, if we think I own this and it's mine forever, then of course I want to make a perfect version out of it. But if I understand we're just borrowing it, we just got it for a little while, only for a short time, it's like, okay, it's not perfect, but wow, thank you. I'll take this one. I can live here. And to see what, so what shifts when I relate from that place is that rather than trying to kind of make it into something perfect, it's more like I can work with what I've got here. I don't need to fix it in accordance with my preference so much. A little bit, sure. You know, I can just maybe adjust the rugs or something like that. But I'm not going to try and knock the walls out. And recognizing transience recognizing it's not just something that's sort of happening now and then. It's this constant, fluid, unstoppable process 
that we are in the midst of. And there's a, a beautiful teaching in the Diamond Sutra, which is one of the, the teachings from the, the later, the northern, and also known as the Mahayana Buddhist school of, of, of uh, um, more the northern countries and the late, later turning of the teachings of the wheel of Dharma. It says, in this way you should look upon this fleeting world. A drop of dew, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a mirage, and a dream. And that, those images, that sense of it, just do you have the sense of the, the evanescence that this and this and this and this and each one of these things, poof, disappears, gone and gone and gone. When we are close to that, as we move through our life, then when things come towards us that are pleasant, that are agreeable, that are, we could call positive or good, we naturally understand it doesn't make a lot of sense to try and hold on to them. Because they're moving, they're fluid, they're alive. When things are unpleasant, unwanted, disagreeable. We understand it doesn't make a lot of sense to try and push them away. We can let them be because they're going to change and move on by themselves, in fact, anyway. And so we can notice this experience, this thing that happens for us, where we, you know, we're engaging in meditation practice and it seems like, oh, finally, it's getting a little quieter in here. And then maybe it actually is actually almost feeling comfortable. And then it's like, wow, it's quiet. It's relatively so. It's relatively comfortable. So, oh, wow, I've got it. I'm here. This is what they were talking about. The Buddha was right. Yeah. Wow. I like it. And then we start to think, oh, this is good, this retreat. I like these retreats. Yeah, I think maybe I'll do a longer retreat. Mm. Maybe I'll do a month or maybe three months retreat. I think, oh, maybe I'll, no, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll actually go to the monastery. I'll shave my head. I'll put on the brown robes and live in a cave. And we start to imagine this sort of, you know, meditating. And, the, you know, the people come to bring food every day. And there's light pouring out of the cave and the strength <laughs> of our practice. And then suddenly we realize we've just constructed this massive fantasy based on the idea that the experience I'm having right now is going to keep happening. And the idea that I'm a great meditator and look what I'm going to do, suddenly that whole permanence, that construction of, a, of an identity, of a life journey and a story based on this experience just falls apart. And we realize, oh, Wow one moment of almost mindfulness and I completely spaced out, lost it, created a whole inflation and fantasy world that was completely ungrounded. I'm hopeless, I can't do this, I might as well go home. I'm, I'm out of here, there's no point in trying any further. And, and in the same way, that moment of I got lost gets translated into, oh, I'm hopeless, I'm useless, I can't do this, I might as well give up and go home. When two moments before we were making a career of it. We do that all the time. 
And to understand impermanence liberates us from that. Because it, it doesn't make any sense to plan my life on an experience that I know will only be here for some time. And I don't know for how long. And it also does not mean that we do not open to meet and connect with what is here. It's not like, oh, it's all impermanent. I'm not really interested in that stuff. Sounds a bit sort of dodgy. Don't want to get mixed up with it. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. William Blake writes, and he writes as he would have in the time he was writing with the pronoun he, but I'll use, uh, I'll translate it so it's... um, the person who binds themselves to a joy does the winged life destroy. The person who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. I have this vague sense that Catherine might have told you that poem already earlier on the retreat, but no? Shada? No? Okay, good. <laughs> so anyway, it's a beautiful poem. That sense of they or the person who binds themselves to a joy. It's like there's something delightful comes and we try and take hold of it because we want to keep it. We try and bind ourselves to it. And it destroys the, the winged life, the aliveness, the movement, the flight is destroyed by that. You're not going to enjoy a bird if you grab it. It just wouldn't be any fun for the bird or you. But if we can kiss the joy as it flies, make intimate contact with it, be touched, touch and be touched. The person who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. Blake is pointing to the dawn of the timeless. Eternity's sunrise and so we learn to make contact with the experience not just that which is difficult we say yeah let yourself feel it be with it equally that which is sweet or lovely yeah equally let yourself feel it be with it get to know it understand its nature understand its limitations it's not going to be able to do it for you if whatever it is you might want it to it can offer something if you offer yourself to it. And likewise, the difficult. It's not actually going to be an obstacle to you. It can't be because it's not going to be able to be there forever. And it might also offer something. So the things can't do it for us, but nor do they somehow prevent it happening, whatever it is that we're looking for in the depth of our hearts. And that's because they are changing. Impermanent. Ungraspable. And as we start to relate to them in this way, we also see that just as we learn to touch and intimately meet that which is sweet or lovely or delightful and relax that reflex urge to grab it and keep it, that wants to have it forever, even though it dies as soon as we've grabbed it, and it's no longer what it was before we grabbed it. As we learn to relax that, it's like, oh, okay. I have more space. 
And we learn also not to push away the emotion or to push away the difficult experience. And particularly in the realm of the emotional life, it's so important to us. What so much moves and drives our lives is that how it feels in here is really important. And so much of what we do is about trying to get it to feel okay in here. All the things we worry about and hope for out there, supposedly in the world, are because of how we imagine we're going to feel in here if it happens. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? It's really important to us, the condition of our heart and our mind, which is why we're working with it, learning about it. And yet all of this that's in here, that is so important to it and to us, and rightly so, this is in a process of change, of movement, of life. And we contemplate this. We see this as we practice. And I think we would be well served to bear in mind the words of Khalil Gibran and the prophet where he speaks of this and he says if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life your sorrow would not seem less miraculous than your joy and you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your land. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. And so again, in just a few words, Gibran speaks of something profound. And that sense of we don't take this for granted, the miracle that we're here at all. Suddenly it's like, ah, yeah, we see there are these seasons. And of course we'd all love to live in the fullness and luxuriance and warmth and ease and delight of summer. But summer grows into its fullness and then it begins to fade away into fall because that fullness can't be sustained and fall dies back into winter. And winter can feel so arid or so cold or like barren and there's no life. We might know that's what it feels like sometimes in deep grief. But out of the winter inevitably come the new green shoots in spring and life comes forth again. And this has always been like this. We don't necessarily in our own journeys experience it on a regular three-month each season cycle. then in fact in different places in the world that isn't quite the same anyway if we looked at the seasons of the land but to see that oh can I can I open to each piece to receive the blessings of summer equally as the offering of winter in my life with some serenity understanding it's the nature of how things grow to do this And so we learn to make peace with this truth of impermanence, this reality, this experienceable phenomena or character of phenomena that they do not last forever. To not struggle with how things are, 
to not try and control the future because it's like trying to build on quicksand. It's dissolving. And to be at home in a changing world, to learn to not dwell. And this is one of the great arts of practice. Excuse me. One of the great arts of attention. Learning to not dwell. To not fix on or fixate upon experience. To allow it to be fluid, to move. To not seek permanent satisfaction or fulfillment from experience or things or beings that are changing because they cannot give us this. But what this teaching asks us to do is to begin to let go, to continue to cultivate and deepen this capacity to release just as we see that taking hold of doesn't quite make sense. Craving and clinging for things that are changing. It doesn't make sense. We begin to let go. And as we begin to let go, we start to see more fully, more deeply, more clearly. What is it that we might discover or understand when we are not holding on so tightly? When we're entering into the life that comes to us with open hands to receive it as it comes and to release it as it goes. Having left his home with the question in his heart, the Buddha said, why should I be subject to birth, aging, sickness and death and impermanence? Why should I spend my life pursuing that which is also subject to this? In the full flowering of his awakening, The Buddha says, there is that which is unborn, unbecome, undying, unchanging. And because there is that which is unborn, unbecome, unmade, undying, there is deliverance, there is release in relationship to that which is born made, become and subject to dying, to ending. And our practice here is an invitation to understand what the Buddha meant when he said that. In my early years of practice, so quite some time ago, I was really fortunate and happy to be able to come and sit a retreat in India, in Budgaya, in the, in the, the temple, the, 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 the monastery of, of, the, of, of Thailand. And um, I'd been there before, and that's what, that had been my first retreat. And Shada had been teaching on that retreat, and she was there again on this other retreat, the second retreat that I came to India. I'd done quite a lot of practice by then, and the year in between, I hadn't really done anything else. But I was there in the monastery, practicing, and really, really happy and um, delighted to be there. And one of the aspects of 
being on the retreat that just I just so loved was the puppies. The monasteries in 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 Asia they're kind of like a sanctuary for all kinds of beings that don't quite have a safe place. And you find chickens, and you find um, puppies, and you find cats, and you you find it's a bit of a retirement plan for some elderly folk who don't have families to look after them. They just come and live in the monastery, and it's really quite beautiful. And anyway, so there's always it seems, at least in the um, the time of year when I'd been going, the, the, the puppies were there. And I just sort of so loved the puppies. I mean, I, I spent time with one that was, 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 was not well and was dying. And it was just so touching and sweet to be with it. And there were these other ones that were so full of life. And you'd be walking really mindfully and they'd just run along <laughs> and bang into your foot just to see if you were really mindful or if you were just <laughs> looking if you were, like you were mindful while thinking about something else. Or if you put your plate down, they just come and help you finish it off, you know, without even needing to, you know, ask you. And I just loved them so much. And somewhere about, I don't know, 10, 12 days into this retreat, I suddenly realized that I thought they were the same puppies that I'd been with last year. And I was like, something exploded. Because they're not the same puppies. (laughs) I mean, obviously, those puppies have grown up. But I realized something about the puppies fooled me. (laughs) And the, the realization that came, the understanding came that the puppies are changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. And what was manifesting in and through and shining out of these little bodies and beings was exactly the same. And so when we practice, as we're practicing here, our invitation is to see all the changes, to work with it, to learn the skills and the tools and the ability to find our way with and through and around as we do. And to also not make that the whole of the process. Because as we find our way to be less entangled by or obstructed by or entranced by all of this that's moving and fluid, we also feel less the need to hold it. To try and create some fixity, safety, certainty, permanence or derive some absolute completion or fulfillment from it. And we can start to sink below the surface. We can start to feel more deeply into the depths of what it is to be what we are. Which is simply just this right here. It is awake. And we may start get a sense or a glimpse of the awakened nature of the human heart and mind. Because it's just this. It's just this.
Rio Khan says, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. And so may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to understand deeply the truth and implications of impermanence, anicca. May we come to live our lives with the open hands and open heart that it calls us to bring as we meet the world. And may we, as we open our hands, allow ourselves also to settle into the depths the awakened nature of life. It is not bound by or to all of that which arises and passes, and yet equally is not separate in any way from it. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, and for the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.